And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. You lost your magic. They knocked you off your game. Your Carlness went right out the window. What's with this Carlness? It's not even a, a real word. It's a conjunction, a preposition. It's a philosophy, a way of life. It's your name with miss attached to it. Bob, listen to me. If you'd have done what I asked you to, to come in my dressing room before the show, you'd have known that you weren't supposed to come out here until I introduced you. Jack, I tried to get into your dressing room, but I didn't have a nickel. I understand you're pretty funny as a DJ. And comedy is a kind of hobby of mine. Well, well, actually, it's a little more than just a hobby. Reader's Digest is considering publishing two of my jokes. Really? Yeah. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Honey Dollar. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, I'll present Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's detective genius Sherlock Holmes from 1947, and then the first portion of a classic radio comedy episode of The Great Gildersleeve, starring Hal Perry. But first, let me say hello to my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. How are you? Good. We're back here again. And yes. you got the dimples going? Yes, they're part of You didn't of have me. them... Um, Surgically removed. That, right? I'm or, working on that. Or in, any, uh, uh, used a spatula, put anything in there to... Yeah, I know. They're, no, they're nice pretty and deep. Clean. Yeah, they're pretty deep. Thanks. So what's going on? Well, in the world of Hollywood, yes. if that's what you're referring to, Goldie Hawn is back in the news. Goldie Hawn. She is going to play Amy Schumer's mom in an upcoming comedy. Amy Schumer's mom. Yeah. Now, how old is Goldie Hawn? Do you know, Carl? Um, I'm going to guess Goldie Hawn is 62. Close, but not quite. She's okay. 70. What? Yep. Goldie Hawn Gosh, is 70. That she is will play one Amy hot 70-year-old. Sh- isn't she? She is still beautiful. Amy Schumer's 34, so age-wise, okay, so it, that, it makes some sense. Yeah. The movie is called Mother Slash Daughter. Mother mm-hmm. Daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Goldie Hawn's first movie gig since 2002. Do you remember um, what she was in? Private Benjamin. I know she did those for a while. That was earlier. Yeah. This was called Banger Sisters. I don't know if you saw that with Susan Sarandon. Now, that's a... That's like a, a girl sappy movie. girl thing. Right. Yeah, I don't watch those sappy movies. Um, so they're going to play a mother-daughter team on a family vacation. Romantic or sappy, I don't watch any of that. I know. You'd have no romantic bones Zero. in your body. There's not one. I know. And if I, I did, I'd have it surgically removed. I don't. Well, you know what? We can make a team. You can get that removed while I get my dimples removed. Right. Sort of a two-for-one yeah, thing. Yeah, at the surgeon. We could use a two-for-one special. Exactly. Um, anyhow, we can look forward to mother-daughter with Goldie Hawn and Amy Schumer. should be uh, a great comedy. All right, sounds great, Lisa Wolf. It's time now for Classic Radio with the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's detective genius Sherlock Holmes came to NBC Radio in 1930, starring Richard Gordon. By 1939, Basil Rathbone was heard as Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. The duo were simultaneously starring in a popular series of Sherlock Holmes movies for Fox and later for Universal. By the end of the movie run in the mid-1940s, Rathbone was eager to separate himself from the radio show to avoid being typecast. And even though the show's sponsor, Petri Wines, offered him generous pay to continue, he decided to move on. Tom Conway took over with Nigel Bruce continuing as Watson, but was receiving top billing. Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce were replaced in 1947 by John Stanley and Alfred Shirley, for new sponsor Clipper Craft Menswear. Others to portray Holmes and Watson over the run 
were George Shelton and Ian Martin and Ben Wright and Eric Stoden. We have a, a great episode now of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from November 23, 1947. It's called The Adventure of the Sally Martin, and it stars John Stanley and Alfred Shirley. It's heard over Mutual. Let's tune into part one now of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Kremel Hair Tonic and Kremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Now, once again, it's time to keep our weekly appointment with that incomparable host and storyteller, Dr. Watson. I'm sure he's expecting us. Of course I am, Mr. Bell. So come in, draw up your usual chair, and make yourself comfortable. Ah, <sighs> uh, that's it. Thank you, Dr. Watson. What story are you planning to tell us tonight? Quite an exciting one, I think. Uh, the only relic I have of it is this rather mildewed piece of paper. I came across it just before you arrived as I was going over my notes on the case. But this doesn't look very exciting. It's a hotel bill, and all it says is board and lodging for one week, 28 shillings and sixpence. <laughs> then there's an extra item, one pint of ale not paid for, five pence. And yet that extra pint of ale was ordered at the very moment... When Sherlock Holmes and I entered into one of the weirdest experiences we ever had. I call it The Adventure of the Sally Market. The story began many years ago in the tiny fishing village of Kingsgate on the Kentish coast. At my insistence, Sherlock Holmes had agreed to take a much-needed holiday. We were staying for a few days at a small seaside inn known as the Silver Dolphin. The adventure began, I remember, on a foggy, bitterly cold evening. Holmes and I, after a hearty dinner, were seated in the public bar of the inn talking to a garrulous old sailor. Little did we think that even in that peaceful village, dark tragedy was stalking us. Tragedy that very soon was to be brought to our attention. Here you are, Albert. Another pint. Thank you, Condy, sir. Ah. Yes, you're very good, Elstead. Oh, an amazing capacity. That's the fifth. I can't think where he puts it. I see no mystery there, Watson. Go on with your story, Albert. You just reached the point where the shark had turned on you. Well, gentlemen, I apps on the rail and dives into that raging sea. Pulls out me knife. Oh, really? Uh, where did you get the knife? I thought you said that you'd lost your clothes in the hurricane. Stepped to me middle, I was. But I always kept a bowie knife stuck in me belt. Oh, really? How uncomfortable. Well, I see the white belly of the shark turning at me. I let him have it. A rip here. A slash there. There was blood all over the place. Never saw such a mess. Uh, Storytelling's very dry work, gentlemen. I'll order you another pint, Albert. Uh, thank you kindly, sir. Watson, look who's just come in. It's our old friend Sergeant Dobson, isn't it? Yes, and judging by his expression, the local representative of the law has serious business on his mind. Good evening, Sergeant. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. Evening, Dr. Watson. How are you, Dobson? Can I have a word with you, private-like? Of course you can. Oh, I beg pardon, sir, but uh, you did say something about buying me another oh, pint. Don't worry, Albert. We'll have it sent over for you. <laughs> Please give Albert another pint, Annie. Put it on my bill. Right you are, Mr. Rose. Perhaps you wouldn't mind stepping into the private bar, gentlemen. Very well. Now, Sergeant, sit down and tell us what's on your mind. Murder, Mr. Holmes. Great Scott. Who? Where? Well, have you gentlemen noticed the fancy sailing boat that's been moored out in the cove this past week? Yes. I was informed that it was owned by George Byron, the Lancashire cotton manufacturer. Uh, that's correct, sir. 
The boat's named the Sally Martin. And right at this moment, Mr. Byron's lying there in his cabin with a knife in his ribs. Deader than a boiled mackerel. Oh, gracious me. I rode ashore to send a telegram to the police at Canterbury. But I left a constable to guard the people aboard. Good. I, I'm going back now to conduct my investigation. But the Canterbury police can't be here before morning and I... I was hoping that... That we'd help you, Sergeant? Well, sir, a case like this is a little outside of my experience. Well, just a minute, Dobson. Mr. Holmes is still a sick man. It's cold out and foggy. As his doctor, I forbid... Rubbish. How can I stay here in the inn while a murder lies waiting to be solved less than a mile away? Come, Watson. The game's afoot. How much further is it, Sergeant? About a, about a quarter of a mile, well, sir. if we don't get there soon, I won't answer for the consequences. I'm a rotten sailor. Cheer up, Watson. In the meanwhile, Sergeant, suppose you give me as many facts as possible. How many people are aboard the Sally Martin? Well, there's three passengers, Mr. Holmes, and, and two in the crew. Well, let's have those passengers first. Well, there's, there's Mrs. Byron, the dead man's wife. A lot younger than him, she is, and... And she looks a bit on the flighty side, if you ask me. Even though she was having a proper fit of hysterics, like. Then there's... There's Clarence Byron, the dead man's brother. And what opinion did you form as to his character? Well, sir, you understand I didn't talk to him much. But he acted cool as a cucumber, just... Just as if murder didn't mean a thing to him. And the third passenger? Well, he's a young fellow by the name of Hodgson. Secretary to the dead man. Very nicely spoken gentleman he is. But it seemed to me as if Mrs. Byron had quite an eye for him, even through her tears. That's why I said she seemed flighty-like. You're very observant, Sergeant. Oh, it's it's just training, sir. How about the two crew members? Well, there's, there's Captain Small. He seemed perfectly above board. And a, a man by the name of Coggins. Arthur Coggins. He's a, he's a deckhand. And a mighty surly one at that. <laughs> He gave me quite a bit of back chat when I questioned them. Holmes, how much further is it? Barely a hundred yards, old chap. Oh, I feel awful. Do hurry up. Move over, Sergeant. Let me take an oar. There's the murdered man, Mr. Holmes. That's just how we found him. Very illuminating. Look at that murderous knife. It's buried to the hilt in his chest. Yes, but more interesting than the knife at the moment is the tableau presented in this cabin. What story does it tell you, Watson? Very simple story. Somebody opened the cabin door, came in, and stabbed him. Oh, come now. Surely our years together have made you a little more perceptive than that. Well, that's what you're driving at. Well, for one thing, in his right hand is an open book. Oh, been reading? Yes, and the sergeant has told us that the oil lantern beside his bunk was still burning when the body was found. Well, that's right, Mr. Holmes. There's no sign of a struggle. The bedclothes are in, aren't even rumpled. No cry for help was heard. So let us reconstruct the scene. Mr. Byron was lying in his bunk, reading, as you observed, Watson. Oh, quite easy. The door opens. The murderer comes in, the knife hidden in his or her clothing. The victim has no suspicion of his fate because the murderer was someone who could enter his cabin at will. And suddenly, the fatal blow is struck. Then it must have been one of the three passengers. I think we may reasonably include the captain. The master of a schooner surely would have the ability to enter his employer's cabin without creating suspicion. Oh, you're right, Mr. Holmes. I think we've seen enough here, Sergeant. Where are the passengers? In their cabin, sir. I told them to wait there until they were sent for. The main saloon's empty. You could see them in there nice and private-like. Splendid. Then let's go there. At once. 
there, 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 Mrs. Barron. My friend's only trying to help you. Oh, how can he help me? He can't bring poor George back to life again, can he? No, madam. But at least I can try to find his murderer for you. He's right, ma'am. So take it easy, like, and answer his questions. Very well. Uh, what do you want to know, Mr. Holmes? Can you suggest anyone who might have had the motive for murdering your husband? Oh, half a dozen men. George made a lot of money. He was a hard businessman. He had many enemies. But none of his business enemies had an opportunity of killing him tonight. His biggest enemy, though I never could make him believe it, is on this very boat now. His brother Clarence. Biggest enemy? His own brother? Oh, come, 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 it's madam. True. It's true. Clarence sponged on him. That's done for years. Never since I married George, he's tried to be more friendly to me than a brother-in-law should be. Mm-hmm. Just because I was once in the theatre, he seems to think I didn't know how a lady oh, behaves. Oh, in the theatre? I wonder if you knew a girl who was daily's pretty little figure. And Watson, was a... surely this is no time for your theatrical reminiscences. Oh, Mrs. Byron, are you familiar with the terms of your husband's will? Everything he has comes to me. Oh? Well, that's perfectly natural, isn't it? Perfectly. But in that case, your brother-in-law would hardly seem to profit from your husband's death. I don't know what you're suggesting, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. You think I stabbed him? I wouldn't have the strength. Mrs. Byron, I suggested nothing. But I'm interested to notice that you answer your questions as well as ask them. Well, I'm not staying here to answer any more questions, Mr. Holmes. I'm going back to my cabin. If you want me, that's where you'll find me. No, wait a minute, ma'am. Let her go, Sergeant. And please ask Mr. Hodgson, the secretary, to come in here. Just as you say, sir. Upon my soul, she's a fine little thing, isn't she, Just attractive, too. What do you make of her, Holmes? It's hard to say. If one wished to adduce motive, it would be easy. Well, she must be 25 years younger than her husband. And uh, a fortune coming to her at his death, eh? Precisely. And despite her own statement, a woman would have the strength to stab an unsuspecting man to death. Here's Mr. Hodgson, sir. Thank you, Sergeant. Please sit down, Mr. Hodgson. Yes, Mr. Holmes. This is a shocking business. It is indeed, my boy. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Any questions you like. When did you last see your employer tonight? Mm, Shortly after dinner, Mr. Holmes. He was taking a turn round the deck. We chatted for a few minutes, and then I went to my cabin and retired. It was about 9.30 or quarter to ten. You heard no cry for help? No shout in the night? No, none. The first I knew of the tragedy was when the captain awakened me. Can you suggest who might have had a motive for his murder? Mr. Holmes, that's... That's a little hard to answer. Come now, Mr. Hodgson. Don't hold anything back. You'll have to talk in a court of law, you know. Yes, I suppose so. Well, gentlemen, in my capacity as secretary, I did know that my employer's brother, Clarence, has been borrowing heavily. Only yesterday morning, I was compelled to draw my employer's attention to an irregularity in the monthly bank statement. A 500-pound check had been drawn. The signature was a forgery. And you think that Clarence Barron committed that forgery? Yes, I do, sir. And so did my employer. The two brothers had a terrible row about it. Uh, Sergeant, will you be good enough to ask Mr. Clarence Byron to come here, please? Right you are, Mr. O. One very personal question, Mr. Hodgson. Was the relationship between you and your employer's wife a purely social one? As a matter of fact, Mrs. Byron has been very kind to me. Oh, really? My family are dead and she's taken an interest in me. But I give you my word that it's been purely platonic. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Sergeant Dobson. Mr. Clarence Byron's lying in his bunk, sir. He says he can't come here. He's got a heart attack. A heart attack? That's rather convenient, eh, Holmes? Yes, Watson. And it's also convenient that there's a doctor aboard. Let's go and see him, shall we?
any better, Mr. Byron? Yes. Yes, I do, Doctor. That injection you gave me helped. It was digitalis, I suppose. No, it wasn't. Holmes's heart's perfectly sound. He was simulating an attack. So I gathered. Since an injection of plain water apparently gave him immediate relief. Plain water? Yes, your heartbeat was full and regular and your color normal. So I decided to try an experiment. And a very successful one. Why did you pretend to have a heart attack, Mr. Byron? I, I wasn't pretending. I do have a bad heart. That I don't doubt. Only a bad heart could prompt you to swindle your brother and then murder him. I didn't murder him. Though uh, I can tell you who did. Oh? You are very eager to shift suspicion, Mr. Byron. Who, in your opinion, murdered your brother? It's that deckhand, Arthur Coggins. Only a few days ago he threatened my brother's life. You heard him make the threat? Yes, I did. It was his second day aboard. It was early in the morning. And I was strolling on deck when I came on this man Coggins. He was standing by the mainmast, practicing throwing a knife. You're pretty handy with a knife, Coggins. What's that? I said you're pretty handy with a knife. Yes. I know how to use a knife. Do you uh, think you're going to like being on this ship? No. Not if I don't get treated like a human being. Just yesterday, the owner yells out to me, Hear you, whatever your name is, treating me like dirt. Whatever your name is. Can't he find out my name? I'm as good as he is. One of these dark nights, he'll get what's coming to him. That's what he said, Mr. Holmes. And he looked as if he meant business. He's an expert with a knife, you say. Holmes, do you think it's possible that Coggins threw the knife through a porthole into the dead man's cabin? Yes, Watson, it's possible. Your story was interesting, Mr. Byron, though, of course, entirely uncorroborated. I think we'll go and talk to the captain and see if he can supplement your information. Well, Mr. Holmes, I, I can't answer for the passengers. That's no business of mine. I appreciate that, Captain Small. But you'll answer for your crew, no doubt. That I will, sir. And this man Coggins is a no good if ever I saw one. Insubordinate, surly... Always talking about how he's as good and better than those who employ him. And why did you engage him, Captain? I didn't, sir. That was arranged by my employer, Mr. George Barron. If I had my way, Coggins would have gone back ashore the first day he stepped aboard. Where is... Great Scott, is that a revolver shot? Well, it sounded like it. And it came from the forecastle. Mr. Holmes! Mr. Holmes! This way, Sergeant. Good heavens! Why... It's Coggins. With a smoking revolver in his right hand. He's committed suicide. Yes. Very convincing, isn't it? His head is sprawled on a piece of fool's cap. A confession note, no doubt. Yes, it is. Look at this. I killed him, and with my record, I knew you'd catch me, so I took the quick way out. Case is solved, Holmes. On the contrary, Watson, it's becoming more involved. If you look closely, you will realize that we now have two murders to solve instead of one. And somewhere on this boat, a murderer is still at large and may strike a third time. So, 
Dr. Watson, the apparent suicide turned out to be another of the murderer's victims. Yes, Mr. Bell. Holmes at once sent Sergeant Dobson to check the passengers while the three of us stood in that tiny cabin, an oil lamp swinging above us and shedding a strange glow on the macabre scene. I asked him why he was so positive that it wasn't suicide. You will notice, Watson... That the revolver is in Crockin's right hand. Yes, Holmes, I don't see what... Then the... ignore the right hand and observe the left. A deck hand is accustomed to hard manual labor. Notice the calluses on his left hand and the freedom from them on the right. By Jove, he was left-handed. Yes, he was, Mr. Holmes. I- I've noticed him at work. Again, you'll observe the shot entered his head from behind the right ear. A remarkable feat of dexterity for a left-handed man. Then the murderer had the note ready, shot Coggins from behind but made the mistake of placing the revolver in the wrong hand. Precisely. But this note, obviously in disguised writing, poses another problem. What does the phrase, and with my record, I knew you'd catch me, mean? He must have had a police record. But why volunteer the information? I wonder if the murderer had a reason. Captain, you said that Cockins was engaged by Mr. George Byron. Well, sir, he told me about the new man, but... I don't know that he interviewed him personally. Where was he engaged? At the Siemens Hostel uh, here in the village. What are you getting at, Holmes? Surely it's obvious, Watson. If this man Coggins had a police record, his murderer might have deliberately placed him on this boat knowing he would be suspected. Yes, yes, it's possible. The question is, who engaged him? Well, Sergeant? All three of them in their cabins, Mr. Holmes, and swore they unlocked them. Yet we know that one of them must have slipped down here and shot Coggins? Lock them in their cabins, Sergeant. Keep good watch on them. Dr. Watson and I are going ashore. Ashore? Why, Holmes, when the murderer's here on this boat? Because I'm convinced that the clue to his identity lies waiting for us at the Siemens Hostel. Where is the place, Sergeant? And who runs it? Olmar Jenkins. It's the house just next to the Red Lion on the quayside. Splendid. Watson, we're taking this note and rowing ashore. Another trip in that filthy rowing boat? Must we, Holmes? That's the first portion of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with The Adventure of the Sally Martin from 1947, starring John Stanley and Alfred Shirley. We'll get back to that in just a few moments. I want to remind our listeners that all four hours of this show, this Hollywood 360 show, are available via podcast at our website. Right, Lisa? Yes. Is that how you listen to it? Yes, Hollywood360radio.com. That's our website. Yeah, we have all four hours at our website. And also, we have a bonus hour because we're just nice. Yeah. So do check it out at uh, Hollywood360radio.com. Let's take a break. Then it's more here on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Welcome back to Hollywood 360. I'm your host, Carl Amari. Lisa Wolf is here as well. And Lisa, we want to remind our listeners to send in pictures of you and your kitty cat because you could win a year's supply of Cat's Pride kitty litter. How does it work? It works if you have a cat or if you know someone that has a cat. Can take you a use picture. a stuffed animal of a cat? Uh, that's fine with me. Yeah. Whatever works for you. I think it's fine. Send it to catspridephoto at gmail.com. We need your name, your stuffed cat's name, your city <laughs> and state. Um, and do it right away. We are nearing the end of the month. And we will have one lucky winner to win an entire year's supply of Cat's Pride Kitty Litter, which is the finest cat litter on the market. We do this every single month, but get in your picture of your kitty cat right away. Send it to catspridephoto at gmail.com. All right, let's get back now to the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Is the 
fine time of night to rootle a respectable woman out of a warm bed, I must say, and no mistake. But, Mrs. Jenkins... Call me Ma. Everyone calls me Ma. Very well. We've come to you because you're the one person who can help solve two murders that took place on the Sally Martin tonight. Murder? Come into me parlor. I'll light the lamp. There. Now, what's this you say happened aboard the Sally Martin? The owner, Mr. Barlin, was stabbed to death about ten o'clock tonight. Later on, a seaman by the name of Arthur Coggins was killed, too. Arthur was killed. You knew this man, Arthur Coggins? Of course I did. Over a year he's been staying with me. He couldn't get a ship because of his record. What record was that? He brought his ship's papers to me. They all do when they're out of a berth. The last ship he was on two years ago, it was. He got mixed up in a knife fight. Oh, did he? Alaska was killed and Arthur arrested. They couldn't prove he was guilty... But he hasn't had a birth since, because it was written in his papers. Well, that fits into your theory, Holmes. The murderer engaged him deliberately, knowing his record. Exactly. Mrs. Uh, Ma. That's me. Do you recall the name of the man who interviewed Coggins? No. The man who engaged him for the Sally Martin? Uh-uh. No. But, but it's here in my book. It's the last entry I made. Uh, here it is. Clarence Byron. The brother. There's our man, Holmes. Could you describe the appearance of Mr. Byron, Ma? No, I, I can't say I remember much about it. He was all muffled up. He was a nice-spoken gentleman, though. You can recall no clue to his identity? It's, uh, worth a sovereign to you, if you can. A sovereign? Well, let me think hard. Y yes, there's one thing I do remember. He had a gold signet ring on his right hand. Splendid, Ma. Watson, the case is solved. Of course it is. Clarence is the man. May I congratulate you on your powers of observation, Watson? Ma, here are two sovereigns for you. Two? But you the said... extra one is for the privilege uh, of borrowing this uh, registry book of yours for a few uh, hours. No. I'm taking it back to the Sally Martin with us so that we may compare the handwriting in it with that of a murderer. <laughs> Oh, but this is ridiculous, Mr. Holmes. Why should you ask Clarence to sign his name? Bear with me a few moments longer, Mrs. Byron, and you'll see why. Blessed if I know what you're up to, Mr. Holmes. I'm a little patient, Sergeant, and you'll see, too. Have you any objection to signing your name, Mr. Byron? I uh, suppose not, though I'm just as confused as the rest of them. There. Thank you. And now, Mr. Hodgson, I wonder if you'd mind helping us. Of course not, Mr. Holmes. What can I do? You saw the forged check. I wonder if you'd try and imitate the signature that Mr. Clarence Byron has just written. Mr. Byron's signature? Yes, his writing is extremely individual, but I think you could help prove that under certain circumstances it can be elastic. See how nearly you can imitate it. I think it'll help us to prove that he murdered his brother. Clarence, you did murder George. I knew it. Mabel, you're out of your mind. Will you copy his signature, Mr. Hodgson? Of course, if you think it'll help you. Holmes, Holmes, look, Hodgson. Sign, please, Mr. Hodgson. Clarence Byron. There. Thank you. That's a remarkably fine gold signet ring you're wearing, Mr. Hodgson. Thank you. Watson, give me Ma Jenkins' register book. There you are, Holmes. Sergeant, I want you to compare the signature in this book with that which Mr. Hodgson has just given us. I think you'll agree that they're both written by the same man. They are. 
Well, blow me down. So he forged Clarence's signature. Exactly. He is quite a specialist in handwriting. Albert, you didn't kill him. You couldn't have done it. It's no good, Mabel, and you know it as well as I do. You knew what I was up to. You helped me. <gasps> you suggested that I use Clarence's name. That's a lie. It's a not lie or not, Sergeant, I suggest you take out your notebook. They're talking in front of witnesses, so make the most of the fact. <laughs> The sun's coming up, Watson. Oh, yes, the, the sea's calmer, Higgins. A very satisfactory start to a new day. Confessed murderer and his accomplice, both of them safely in the care of the police. Yes, I was convinced, until we found him murdered, that Coggins, the, the deckhand, was the guilty party. Exactly what you were meant to think. I thought that, uh, as he was an expert knife thrower, he could have thrown one through a porthole into the dead man's cabin. No, Watson. Both portholes were at the head of the bunk. But the knife wound was from the underside of the heart and upwards. It would have been impossible to have thrown the knife through a porthole at such an yes, angle. Yes, yes, I can see it all now. Young Hodson, coveting his employer's wife, planned a knife murder and then engaged Coggins, knowing that with his record, he'd be the logical suspect. Yes, but like so many murderers, he tried to be too clever. He left enough clues to hang himself half a dozen but times Why over. did Clarence pretend to have that heart attack? The nervousness of a person who knows himself to be under suspicion. A futile attempt to escape interrogation. Oh, I'm glad it's all over. I'm exhausted and I'm frozen. And I'm delighted to think that this is my last trip in this horrible rowing boat. Whereas I'm feeling very stimulated. And in a distinctly altruistic mood. Altruistic? What do you mean, Holmes? If you'll observe the flurry of excitement at the quayside, the figures in blue surge that are at this moment embarking in boats... You'll realize that the police from Canterbury have just arrived. Well, I still don't see how altruism comes into the picture. I intend to claim no credit in the solution of this crime. And in consequence, I see little reason why our old friend Sergeant Dobson should not very soon be known as Inspector Dobson. Tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Rygate Puzzle. Nigel Bruce appeared by permission of California Pictures. Tom Conway through the courtesy of Eagle Lion Pictures. This is Joseph Bell speaking for Kreml Hair Tonic and Kreml Shampoo. And inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when Dr. Watson will tell us about the strange death of Mrs. Abernethy. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. And that's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from November 23, 1947, with The Adventure of the Sally Martin, starring John Stanley and Alfred Shirley, as heard on the Mutual Broadcasting System. Did you enjoy that, Lisa? I liked it, Carl. Well, I know you like comedies. Yes, I do. And we have a comedy up next. It's time for The Great Gildersleeve. We listen to these all the time. Hal Perry originated this role on the Fibber McGee and Molly radio show. It spun off for its own program as heard on NBC, sponsored by Kraft. We have an episode for you now from February 4th, 1945. This is called A Visit by Aunt Hattie. It stars Hal Perry as the Great Gildersleeve. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> yeah, Kraft. Kraft Cheese Company, makers of parquet margarine and a complete line of famous quality food products, presents Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve. Kraft brings you the Great Gildersleeve every week at this time, written by John Wheaton and Sam Moore, with music by Claude Sweet. 
Let us turn now to the great Gildersleeve. For a week, he's had as his house guest Aunt Hattie Forrester, who has volunteered to help straighten out his nephew and niece, a matter which he's been happy to leave entirely in her hands. We won't say that Gildersleeve has been avoiding Aunt Hattie, but the pressure of business the water department has suddenly become so great that for the last three nights, he's had to stay downtown for dinner. And this morning, his fatigue is such that he's allowed Bertie to persuade him to have breakfast served to him in bed, while the rest of the family have theirs downstairs. Breakfast upstairs, breakfast downstairs. I think it was a hotel. Oh, Bertie! Yes, sir? Send Leroy up with the newspaper, will you? I want to see where the Russians are. Yes, sir, I'll do that. Now, try and eat nicely, Leroy, like Marjorie. Excuse me, Miss Forrester. Yes, Bertie? Leroy, honey, run upstairs to your uncle with the newspaper, will you? I've got to take his tray out to the kitchen. Okay. Wait. Yeah? You can't be jumping up from the table in the middle of meals, Leroy. Finish your breakfast. But I'll gasp for the paper. Yes, ma'am. He wants to see where the Russians are. The Russians can wait. They ain't done much waiting lately. I'll take the paper up, Leroy, as soon as I get a chance. Eat your breakfast. Pilot to Bombardier, pass the buns. Bombardier to Pilot, buns away. Roger. Wilco. <laughs> <laughs> what on earth are you children talking about? That's air court talk. Shoot the buns along, will you, Aunt Hattie? Bertie! I'm coming, Miss Gilfleeve. Coming in a minute. Oh, this house. Uh, what did you say, Leroy? Shoot us a bun, will you? Is that any way to ask for it? Please, may I have a bun? Yes, Leroy, you may. Thank you, Aunt Hattie. Really? Bertie! Oh, Bertie! Oh, that man. It's him. He wants something. I'm coming, Miss Gildersleeve! Uh, Bertie, just a minute. Uh, yes, ma'am? Uh, tell me, does Mr. Gildersleeve often sleep through breakfast like this? Oh, he ain't asleep. He's just resting. It's because he's been working so hard these last few days. Are you kidding? Shut up. That's right. It's because he's been working so hard. Uh, does he often fail to come home to dinner? Well, just these last few days... But it's like Miss Marjorie said, it's on account of him working so hard. That's it. Yes, ma'am, he sure is a hard-working man, Mr. Gillsleeve. That's all he does is work. Work, work, work. He's a hard-working man. Yes, ma'am, he works hard. Well, be that as it may, we ought to stick to some kind of a schedule. After all... Oh, Mr. Gillsleeve, I was coming right up. Yeah, well, that's all right, Bertie. Good morning, Uncle Mort. Good morning, my dear. Hattie, hope you'll excuse the bathrobe. I... Just thought if you'd finish with the paper. I was just saying to Bertie Throckmorton, I think it's important to the children that we establish some kind of a household schedule here and stick to it. Great idea. Hand me the paper, will you, Leroy? Thank you. Now, I thought if we had breakfast every morning at 7.30 sharp... By George, those Russians. Uh, do you hear, uh, hear Throckmorton? I'd uh, suggest breakfast at 7.30. You hear that, kids? And I think we should have lunch at 1 o'clock every day, Bertie, and dinner at 6.30. Yes, ma'am. You know, my great-grandmother on her father's side was part Russian. Uh, you can't stop the Russians. Or was she French? Uh, Throckmorton, are you listening? I said dinner at 6.30. Oh, I'm listening. Yeah, make a note of that, Bertie. Dinner at 6. 6.30. And I think the hour before dinner should be the quiet hour, when we all get together and just enjoy each other's company. Uh, that's the way it always was at home. Great idea. What do you know? Harry Beck's gone through bankruptcy again. I wonder how many times that makes it. Now, uh, we'll start by getting up at 7 o'clock every morning. All of us? All of us. You hear that, Unc? Just do as your aunt says, my boy. Don't bother me. I'm reading. And we go to bed at 9. 9? Nobody I know goes to bed before 10. To bed at 9, Marjorie, with lights out at 9.15. You'll see what a difference it makes. You'll be glad to get up in the morning. And your uncle will find he can accomplish more, too. Wait a minute. 
Are you including me in this? I'm including everybody. A schedule isn't a schedule if we don't all stick to it. Oh, now, Hattie, after all, I'm not 16, you know. How do you expect the children to do anything if you don't set them an example? Either we have a schedule or we don't. Besides, the children will be much better off. I'm sure Leroy will get better marks in school if he gets plenty of sleep for a change. There's nothing the matter with Leroy's marks now. He got nothing but A's on his last report card, didn't you, Leroy? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. We're none of us so perfect we can't improve. Even Leroy. Say, Unc. Yeah? Speaking of report cards. Yes? Well, never mind. I'll take it up with you later. What is it, my boy? Well, since you brought it up, I I got my marks for the term. Where are they? I got my report card here. Just a sec. Why haven't I seen this card before, Leroy? The new term started a week ago. Well, I, I forgot. Oh, you forgot. Well, I knew you were busy. Oh, I was busy. Well, well I was going to show it to you. I was going to show it to you Monday. It wouldn't spoil your weekend. Let me see that report card. There. Leroy. <laughs> I can't imagine what happened, Doc. I got all A's last time, remember? Teacher must have had it in for me. I'll tell you what happened. You didn't do a lick of work all month. That's what happened. Yes, I did. I worked hard. Didn't I, Marsh? Didn't I, Bertie? You worked so hard, you just barely got through with the skin of your teeth. Honest, huh? There's no excuse for this, my boy. No excuse whatever. You're perfectly capable of doing good work. It's sheer laziness. Why, George, if I'd got those marks, I know what my father would have done. I've got a good mind to take you upstairs right now, young man, and... No, 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 I'm please. Now, Throckmorton. Keep out of this, Hattie. Young man, go up to your room and remove your trousers. But, you heard me. Take off your pants. Throckmorton, that's no way to handle a child. It's contrary to all child psychology. She's right. I'll do better next month, huh? You'll take off your pants right now. He'll do nothing of the sort. I think I'd better go see somebody about... Look, may I make so bold as to ask who's running this family? No one, evidently. Well... How can you expect a child to do any better in an environment like this? Yeah. What's the matter with this environment? It's a madhouse. Meals at irregular hours, children staying up as late as they please. You don't come home for dinner, you don't get up for breakfast. There's a reason for that. How can you expect them to amount to anything? Yeah. If you think that you can make up for your shortcomings now by beating the boy... Well, all I can say is I have no use for any man who would strike a child. Thanks, Aunt Hattie. You shut up. I think I'll go and call up Penny. You stay where you are. Who, me? Marjorie hasn't done anything, Throckmorton. That's right. Contradict me. Ridicule me. Turn my family against me. Oh, that's ridiculous. All right. Have your own way. Do as you like. Coddle the boy. Spoil him. From now on, I wash my hands of all responsibility. I wash my hands completely. Can't even be master in my own house. Why, George, I got half a mind to go back to bed and stay there till Easter. Well, hello, Mr. Gellersleeve. Uh, uh, hello, Peavy. Nice day. Is it? Mm, correct me if I'm wrong. I wouldn't know, Peavy. I wouldn't know. Uh, uh, you mind if I sit down? Not at all. Our seats are placed there for the convenience of our customers. Thank you. You look like a man who has something on his mind, Mr. Gildersleeve. Peavy, I want to complain about my sister-in-law. Do you mind? Uh, Miss Forrester? Yeah. You know what she's doing? She's trying to turn Leroy against me. Well, now, I wouldn't say that. Well, she is. She's tried to make me out a monster in my own home, a brute, just because I try to maintain a little good old-fashioned discipline. Wants me to spare the rod and spoil the child. Leroy been getting into a little devilment, has he? Devilment? He darn near got flunked out of school. Well, I, I wouldn't worry about Leroy. He's a pretty smart boy. That's just the trouble. 
He's smart enough to know that if he can get away with it this once, he can try it again. No, sir. The only thing that'll do that boy any good is a good, sound larrapin. I know the type, Peavy. I was one myself. And my old man gave it to me plenty. Well, of course, I haven't any boys of my own. Mrs. Peavy and I have often regretted that we haven't. But I'd be inclined to try kindness first. Oh, don't get me wrong, Peavy. I love Leroy. Why, I'd cut off my own right arm rather than harm a hair of his little head. I'm sure you would. But by George, he's either going to cut out this loafing and get down to business or I'll thrash the living, living daylights out of him. You know, uh, speaking of thrashing puts me in mind of a book I read as a boy, Little Man. Did you ever read Little Man, Mr. Gillespie? I seem to remember it vaguely. Louisa May Alcott, fine writer. Same lady who wrote Little Women. Yeah, I know. Only this one was about little men. It's a boys' school. Well, one of the boys did something bad, I forget just what. And Professor Bear, who was a kindly old gentleman, instead of whipping the boy, he made the boy whip him. What? Yeah, gave the boy a ruler, told him to hit him across the palm of his hand as hard as he could. What happened? Well, the boy just couldn't bring himself to do it, because he loved the old gentleman. Professor Bear insisted, but the boy just couldn't do it. He threw the ruler down and ran off and cried his heart out. He never was a bad boy anymore. By George. I've always thought that was pretty smart of Professor Bear. Pretty sound psychology. Yeah. What's the joke, Mr. Gillespie? Thinks I'm a monster, does she? Calls herself a child psychologist, eh? Gonna teach me how to run my home, is she? PB, here's where I show up, Aunt Hattie. Lunch is ready. We hardly thought that you would be late for the first day. I'll be right with you, Hattie. Sit down if you want to. Where's Leroy? Oh, Leroy? Yes, Aunt Hattie. Coming in, Hattie. I want a word with you, Leroy. You wanted a word with me? Yes. I've been thinking over your school marks and how I ought to punish you for them. Now, Throckmorton, I thought we agreed. Please, Hattie, just leave this to me. I want you to go into my study, Leroy, and bring me the ruler, which you will find in the long desk drawer. You want the... You heard me. Go and get it. Throckmorton, I totally disapprove of this. In fact, You don't I... know what I'm going to do. You keep your eyes open. You may learn a thing or two about child psychology. I can't seem to find it here, Aunt. Bring me the ruler. Okay. Now, give it here. There you are. Ruler. Now, my boy, as punishment for what you've done, I want you to take this ruler... And strike me across the hand with it. As hard as you can. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. That's your punishment. Go ahead, Leroy. Hit me. Gosh, I... Do you mean it? I mean it. Hit me. Hard? As hard as you can. Okay. Oh! Why, you little devil! You savage! If I catch you, I'll break every bone in your little body. And wait till I see that peavy, him and Louisa May Alcott. (laughs) 
And that's the first portion of The Great Gildersleeve from February 4th, 1945, starring Hal Perry. And we'll listen to the uh, second half of that, Lisa, on our next hour of Hollywood 360. Let's take a break. Then it's more with Carl, Lisa, and Mike. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Well, Lisa, on our next hour of Hollywood 360, we'll tune into the conclusion to The Great Gildersleeve. What else do we have on the agenda? Do you know? I sure do. We've got the FBI in Peace and War from October 27th, 1954, titled The 80 Grand Exit. Ah, very good. And Martin Blaine is the star of that, I believe. You are correct. (laughs) Okay. So tune us in on our next hour. Thanks for tuning in.